Today, I am very excited to host a new friend named Lori McGraw. Now, Lori is a 30-year executive who is known for driving innovation, company growth, and industry standard setting across the healthcare sector. She is a board lead and director to multiple NASDAQ companies, a venture advisor, and a health equity champion. Previously, Lori has also been a TEDx speaker and part of the Forbes Technology Council. She and I briefly crossed paths when she was the president at Allscripts, but have more recently got to know each other through her incredible podcast called Inspiring Women. Now, outside of work, Lori is a passionate outdoor enthusiast and is fortunate to live between both Boulder, Colorado and Big Sky, Montana. Now, as you'll see today, Lori is committed to building the next generation of leaders through her podcast, Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. On that show, she is providing incredible insights to women who are navigating their career paths and working to make a positive impact in the world. Enjoy the show. Lori, welcome to the show today. Rebecca, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. I've been looking forward to it all week long. You're such an incredible person who's had a very impactful career and now are making an even bigger impact in a lot of women's lives around the country. So, so excited to chat today and learn more about you and your background. And I'm so excited to pay attention to you and learn a lot more about podcasting, which is my new hobby and um, seems to be your area of clear expertise. So anyway... <laughs> Thank you. I love it. It's always great to collaborate. So let's dive in here. As you know, I talk a lot about digital transformation, which in some worlds is just a buzzword. But to you and I, I think it really does mean something and something that's been really impactful into the healthcare industry, especially where you've spent a ton of time and invested a lot of your career energy and resources for you know a long time through this incredible career that you've had. So Tell us a little bit about when you hear digital transformation and with what you're doing within healthcare today, what exactly does that mean to you? Yeah, so I, I, I think about it as the time we're in right now, um, because we've come through the pandemic, you know, we're through it, even though there's like, you know, new um, resurgence of COVID and whatnot, but it is based on all of the work of digital, which has been going on for well over a decade piled on to this concentrated period of time in healthcare where there were no other options but to use digital tools and telemedicine and other remote patient monitoring, all these other ways we had to take care of patients. So all of these fantastic technologies, innovations, which people knew were a good idea, there were not necessarily the incentives to adopt them in sort of very significant ways. And then, boom, there's this colossal event, which meant 10 years of adoption was concentrated in 12 and 18 months. So now uh, that is trans transformative. Um, and there's so many positives that came out of that, but there's also so many things that need to be done. We need the innovation and the excellence to, you know, further come, you know, for us. And I think about it a lot from, um, you know, my experience in the electronic health record space. I mean, I spent, you know, a dozen plus years, more than that, 15 plus years working on electronic health record adoption. It wasn't even called EHR back then. It was EMR. And that's what it was. Um, no, people sort of knew it was coming and everyone knew it was coming, but it wasn't until you had the incentives from the High Tech Act that really led to the mass adoption. We're now at over 95%. It's ubiquitous in terms of EHRs um, being in place. But that took 
more than a decade, even though they were 20 years in the making for these technologies. And so I look back on that as sort of like, you know, very proud of having paved the clinical information highway. Um, but now, and just now, I feel like we're in generation two of electronic health records with all this innovation, but it's coming from digital. And it's coming from digital and all of the connection and extensions and opportunities to work with these foundational tools um, that's available to us in healthcare. So very long answer to your opening question, uh, but I do think we're in this like explosive opportunistic time. And we really also have the opportunity to look back, you know, lessons learned, there's a lot to pay attention to um, so that we really take advantage of what's available to us right now. When I think of EMR and EHR today, it's table stakes too. So it's funny to think that 15 years ago, it was like this painful experience to get people to adopt it and get away from paper. And some people still are fighting the paper battle like <laughs> to the end. Um, but now in most places, it's like a customer relationship management system, a sales force for a healthcare provider. Like you have got to have an EHR to be successful in your ecosystem. But it took this amazing journey and uh, a lot of resistance to get there. Where it's funny now, if you see AI, for example, there's not nearly as much resistance. There's an excitement. But then almost it feels like that tech is running a little bit ahead of us. So do you see some maybe different developments between what the EHR world was like to how AI is going to be adopted? Or are there going to be some parallels between the two? I would say absolutely both. I mean, so if you um, think back or go back to the electronic health record adoption, um, the resistance came from the people who actually needed to use um, these products. And I remember that, you know, well, because I spent so much of my time, you know, out there on the front line, talking to physicians, to working on workflows, touring, touring clinics and hospitals um, and everything else. But truthfully, it wasn't until well into electronic health record adoption that I really began to appreciate how much it impacted the user. And, you know, it wasn't all positive. I mean, these workflows were more cumbersome, more work. You took these extremely well-educated, I mean, the, you know, dozens of years of education to be a clinician. And now you're bringing them down to clerk level in terms of the skills that they needed to use the tools that we built. Those are the lessons learned. If you look at AI, okay, which is the opportunity with AI to take this massive amount of data that is available to us to do good, to reduce costs, to get rid of a huge amount of administrative burden that has been creeping up. It's only been going in one direction, which is, you know, not the right one. Um, that's exciting. The lesson learned that we should learn is to make it seamless. If the AI algorithms can truly do what we think they should be able to do, reduce burden, for the end user, it has to be seamless. We can't ask a physician to do one more extra thing. We can't. It actually is too much. One more button click, one more whatever. It has to pull something away. So I think the opportunity, you know, is to use AI in a seamless way and there won't be resistance. There needs to be trust. We need to know that these things work 
And that means we need to have transparency in terms of what, how are these large language models built? Are they built on data that has no bias in it? How do we ensure that the bias is taken out? Because usually the data is dirty. Usually there is bias in the data based on where it's, it's coming from. So how do we do that? That's not a clinician's job to sort that out, but there needs to be, whether it's authorities or mechanisms that they can understand that that's true. Again, as long as it's seamless and reduces burdensome work, I think adoption is going to be um, exceptional. I would also say that you know, those things that I think we want to take for granted is their security, is their patient privacy, is their transparency in that data. We want all those things to be true, but the likelihood that they will all be true is quite frankly, it's very unlikely because right now we just have the beginnings of AI frameworks and guardrails that are policies, not laws, not regulations that companies must abide by. So we're in this time where those guardrails and other things, they do need to be formed and we need to catch up as quickly as possible as the technology is moving because it's exciting. But without that, you know, I expect we'll have some failures, we'll have some problems um, out there. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't, for me, that doesn't say like, okay, we need to put a complete halt um, on things, but we really, I believe, need to bolster um, the policy frameworks, the guardrails, the regulations and things to ensure that um, we have the safety and other things that we expect out of these types of innovations. I want to talk about too, because I was thinking about this recently, um, kind of a missed uh, advancement, for lack of a better term, in healthcare with blockchain, you know, six, seven years ago. Blockchain was the next big thing for healthcare, and I was going to have all this protection, and people could, you know, have their own data literally available to them via the blockchain. Um, and it didn't really happen, I think, as people planned. And I'm sure you were right in the middle of a lot of that and trying to make it work. And it's worked in some forms, the blockchain and other, you know, industries and other applications. But healthcare just didn't hit hit the mark right on the head. So I'm curious your perspective on maybe what that miss was and what the learnings were from that experience. Well, so you're exactly right. I did spend quite a bit of time, you know, exploring blockchain back when I was at the American Medical Association. And we were exploring it because we thought there was a really great application of blockchain to the credentialing of physicians and the, you know, what certifications they need and sort of keeping those credentials with them lifelong because, you know, with their various dates, expirations, new starts, all of those things. Um, But we were in that exploration, very, very cautious about it because once, of course, you're on the blockchain, the sort of like the erasing it and having those permanent records, um, you know, be corrected, it became very complicated very quickly. Um, So, And we saw those types of explorations with many different companies that we were working with or talking to or exploring um, in terms of just like, okay, what would this be used for? So some of it, from my perspective, was the permanency and just like, what does that mean? And how, uh, um, you know, what are the right applications? The other thing that just, you know, why didn't it catch on all over the place? It seemed like the applications were just not as 
prevalent um, in terms where blockchain obviously would be the right solution, technology solution for this problem. So that was sort of the, the, a lot of caution to it, but then the application mismatch. Whereas if you move to whether it's just like digital tools or, um, or AI, the applications are seemingly infinite, you know, in terms of like, oh, what if we took this process and we put it, you know, and made it, you know, asynchronous, synchronous, you know, available to the patient, remove like these 13 middle steps, you know, along the way. What if we could start monitoring patients with diagnostic tools in their home so they don't need to do all these other things? And those were like, those were early ideas that still, um, you know, still are being adopted, but with AI, I mean, anybody can think of like one more thing they just experienced where there would be an, a natural application that could work, um, and do something positive, remove a barrier or something like that. No, you're right. And then I also think to, um, COVID where I feel like a lot of companies showed their cards on how fast they could make innovation happen, that if there's something there and it drives a business outcome, they're going to make it happen. And if not, it's like, okay, learn, pivot, you know, move on. Uh, so it's funny now to be able to see what people accomplished in 12, 18 months because of being in such a rare situation like the pandemic, that now you can kind of sniff out when there's situations and in these startups that are the next big thing. And it's like, if it's not catching on in 12 to 18 months, then technology is moving so fast, maybe it's not going to solve this business outcome and it's time to go find the next thing and try to advance that as well. Yeah, I think we'll be learning um, from the lessons of technology adoption from COVID for quite some time. I mean, I just think like everyone responded technology-wise, the healthcare system, which was quite frankly near the point of breaking already, whether it's sort of like the financial pressures, the burden pressures, the workflow pressures, the so much data, but still sort of a lack of the right data in the right place. It was breaking and then boom. And the response from companies, obviously clinicians um, to this, you know, the amount of care that needed to be delivered uh, we learned so much. And the other thing I think that we absolutely was brought to the forefront, which has always been there, was the health equity issues that are there in healthcare. And, you know, we, we can talk about that or not, but, but in that particular space, in the health equity space, I think that became sort of something that was absolutely brought to the forefront of everyone, not just people who were sort of working in that space, which I think is a really good thing. If we can sustain that awareness and bring equitable healthcare to all, um, that would be to me one of the greatest achievements of the next 10 to 20 years. If we could sincerely close those gaps in care delivery, whether it's the pulse oximeter that, you know, doesn't recognize, you know, darker skin tones or melatonin in skin, or like as one example of thousands of examples, um, that's a, just a, to me, another tremendous opportunity with a huge amount of um, work still needed. Well, and this is where you're spending, I feel like a lot of your time today now, but in helping women 
on the career front. And then you also informed me a little bit about what you called femtech too, which was a little bit new, newer term to me. And um, you like now make it a mission to find more of this equity between women in the workforce and women in healthcare, which is so cool. So podcasts, inspiring women. I loved your TED talk and we still have too few women in leadership. So what do we do now? Like it's just so incredible. So tell us a little bit more about the inspiration behind that and where you're making your own personal time investments to close these gaps for everyone. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about it. This is such a um, passion project and, and it came about during the pandemic. I mean, my entire career um, as, a, as a woman executive, um, I am the same story as we all know, just, you know, one of not the same number of women around any particular table as there were men. So there you go. So I've spent a lot of time with that in my acute awareness. I have, um, you know, mentored many women. That has always been an important part of um, who I am. During the pandemic, there was the Women in the Workplace study that comes out every year, comes out from McKinsey and the Lean In organization. And yet again, this is even before we were in the throes of the pandemic, um, the news around women moving into leadership was still slow, steady, but incremental, not you know, we're not necessarily making the um, leaps that uh, seem to be needed. It's not a pipeline problem. It's not a, it's just a lot of issues. So I started this podcast. It's called Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. All I do is I interview incredible women at all kinds of stages of their um, careers, mainly focused on healthcare, technology, innovation. And I try to lift up them up and show their voices. And how did you get here? And how did you tackle this problem before you were this incredible person with the only intention so that others can hear the stories and maybe perhaps hear something that resonates with them because everyone is different. Everyone shows up, is authentic in their own individual way, um, and has the opportunity to advance in leadership. So that's my mission. Um, it has been really fun. We're two plus years into this and what I've really enjoyed about this is not only does it resonate certainly with women, in particular younger women, which is very important to me, but it has resonated so much with male leaders, um, people who are in positions of power and influence and, you know, making decisions about what happens with their colleagues, their networks, their employees. Um, and it's resonated with them in a way that just is very affirming for me and just says to me, like, this is great. The fact that people don't necessarily know these things, um, you know, where the biases are, where the numbers um, stand. It, it shouldn't be a surprise, yet it always is kind of a surprise. Um, and then, of course, you know, I explore innovation. And one of the areas of a lot of innovation right now is femtech, you know, as you said, and this is actually funny because the idea that the idea that in healthcare, women, biologically, whatever, are the, the women are different and that there's other types of care solutions um, that might be needed. It's not just having babies. It's an entire spectrum of, um, of life cycles. 
in some ways it's kind of humorous, but there's new money coming into it. There's new solutions that are um, being developed. Um, there is, uh, there it's being sort of like categorized as a trillion dollar space of like, you know, opportunity um, that's out there, which would be amazing if there was. And there's a little bit of investment. So there's new funds that are specifically going into this space. Um, there are new companies, but there's definitely more dollars needed to support the opportunity for innovation in this area. I love it. And a kudos to you too, as I was checking out your podcast and your TEDx talk. In the way that you elevate women, it's never at a negative impact to a man, which is kind of rare in some cases now. A lot of women want to make the guys out to be the bad guy and toxic masculinity as to why they need to stand up and why they deserve XYZ. And I think it very rarely has to do with what men are doing wrong and it has to do with what women just need to step up and do more. And I think in your now what of your TEDx is exactly what you're encouraging women to do now. And I want you to speak a little bit more to that. It's confidence. It's investing in yourself. It's being in the right rooms, not working at the detriment of taking somebody else out for you to then be elevated. So being like just taking down of the problems and, you know, like those, those are important issues. So like whether it's unconscious bias, which as it turns out, 67% of people in a recent study have unconscious bias against women. 67% of people, that's women too, right? You know, so that is an enormous, so that that is. 90% um, of people who are making decisions in boardrooms for board director seats are men. Uh, you know, so like, like these are just facts. And so my view is like, these are facts. They're not, we can bemoan them and we can and should work on systemic issues. Absolutely. All the time. Um, but as an individual, as an individual, I feel it is imperative for women to take control of what they can take control of despite odds, despite issues and do what they can. And so, you know, I, I, just through lots of discussions and lived experience, you know, boil it down to there are a couple things that are needed. Certainly confidence and confidence shows up when you have it. And confidence can show up in you even if you don't have it. There are ways, there are techniques to learn it, to, you know, stretch it out, whatever those, <laughs> those um, things are. And, and that's imperative. You really, people want to help and invest in people who have something and they have some confidence in themselves. Um, certainly the, you know, finding your network of supporters, board of directors, there's lots of terms for this, but mentors, but we really do need to seek that out. And I do think, and it's encouraging, it's encouraging for women leaders. It's encouraging in terms of what I see when I speak to young people. I feel like this is known. I didn't necessarily know this, you know, when I was growing professionally early on, but I feel like more people are understanding that they can get help. They can ask for help and people will do that. People are very responsive when asked um, to be a mentor, not a hundred percent, but um, they do. 
And then the last thing is like, you know, having a plan, really having a plan for what you want next, seeing it, making milestone steps, you know, to um, make that happen along the way. And those are not everything, obviously. It's two um, that it's, these are two broad topics to boil them down. But I feel like those are things that individuals can do to help themselves advance. Um, and most people, in, you know, most people that I see professionally, they want to advance, you know, because you people work hard. My view, people genu genuinely, generally work hard. And if you're going to do that, you know, advancing, whether that means advancing your skill set or advancing, you know, up the leadership ladder, whatever is important to you, I feel like everyone should have that opportunity. And I just want people to have more tools um, to help navigate that. Yeah, something I saw early on in my career, like literally first job out of college, was a missing piece of a lot of women's mindset in the work environment that was just completely oblivious to me until I was literally around a circle for a lean-in group. And all these women were just so negative and so worried about not being able to do things that men did. And I've been playing drums since I was 12. It never crossed my mind I couldn't do what a man had done. Like, it just was like, no, I owned it. I loved this. And so I never had that mental block that these women had been living with well into a career further than me in my first job out of college. And that takes some undoing. That's got to be a hard thing to be building up against. And it's just a lack of exposure and opportunity and podcasts like inspiring women to make these women realize like, Oh, how silly. Of course I could play drums as well as a man, if not better. It's up to me to decide. <laughs> right. Well, you know, also also um progress has been made. Lots of progress has been made. And we we need to celebrate all of it. All of it. Um, and so, you know, here you are, you're younger than me, and there are many young women who have similar experience. So first of all, let, let's just also take a pause and talk about how cool it is that you're a drummer. Okay. Like, let's just like say that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, but, but in terms of like, you know, you have that and then so many younger women, they, they do not have the same level of, um, I will say things that I experienced earlier at that stage of the career. Yay for that. Mm. And younger women also still have the experience where they're not being paid equally to a male counterpart who's doing a similar job. So, so like that's today's issue as an example. And it's not everywhere, but it's still quite prevalent. So like we're younger women, one of the things, you know, I speak with lots of younger women, I'm always advise them when they're taking their first job, you know, that first professional thing and they get the offer. I'm like, no matter how great it is, whatever offer you're being given, negotiate something, something, an extra vacation day, uh, this, a title, money, and those things matter. Usually for a young woman, it will matter a million dollars of compensation, you know, over the course of her career. But those are the types of things that are today's issues for young women. And they don't need to do the types of things or, or face the types of things that I faced, you know, way back when, because that was way back when, I mean, it was a long time ago and yay, we don't have to like, you know, worry about the not feeling like I could drum um, as well as anyone else, because you obviously can. Yeah. 
Oh, that's great. I've heard about the drum offs. <laughs> <laughs> I might have beat a guy, but <laughs> that's a story for another day. Um, I love this. This has been so inspiring, Lori. I loved having you on the show, and I want to wrap up with one final question, which is around principles. And I'm curious to hear from you. What is the guiding principle that you've lived by to be successful in business? I mean, there's there's several. Um, th- there's several, but so I am the type of person who, I mean, I am a learner. You know, I am I am really about sort of like pushing myself, learning um, the next thing. Like right now it's podcasting. I'm learning from you, Rebecca, right? We were talking about that. And um, that's today important. Learning things is very important. But I spend a lot of time sort of like being true to who I am. And what that means for me is I expect things like a level of excellence, whether that's, you know, something I'm putting together, I want things to look a certain way, I want it to, um, you know, be spell checked, you know, all of those little details matter to who I am. And if I say I'm going to do something, I'm, it's always been important to me to have deliverables to sign up for something by a date, you know, this is what you can expect. I expect to honor that. And if I can't, you are going to know um, that I can't, but it's the learning piece and really wanting, because that has varied over the course of my career. And I hope continues to, you know, because first of all, it's very rewarding to learn new things um, and aspire to be like other amazing people. I mean, again, Rebecca, I said I was going to bring this up, but you know, we, you and I were talking about just like activities we like to do, um, you know, just like on our spare time. And I was just marveling at your fitness activities of Spartan races, which, you know, I think you're kind of um, injured and beaten up because <laughs> of them. And I was like, oh my gosh, this woman is just amazing. So anyway, Aww. my point is you can learn from so many different people and that keeps me, I think, sharp and, um, and, and it's interesting. So that's just another aspect that I, you know, encourage everyone. I mean, life's very, very big. Um, lots of things happen during the course of your life. If you're still learning, you show up as you want to be, which is for me, you know, the things I say I'm going to do will get done. Um, that's, that's worked. Well, you're an inspiration to me, Lori have loved having you on the show. And for those listening, please check out inspiring women. There will be a link in the show notes as well as to Lori's TEDx, which I think you'll find interesting as well. So thanks again for joining us today, Lori. And if there's anywhere else anybody can find you, please let them know. I will. We'll put it in the show notes. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. We'll talk to you soon. 